0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No
2: purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: If you enjoy bizarre true stories, then the Useless Information Podcast is the podcast for you. For example, did you know that author Robert Louis Stevenson gave his birthday away, or that there was a football team that played for six years before someone realized that the school never ever existed, or that a dog in upstate New York was once placed on trial for murder? Well, to hear these and hundreds of additional fascinating true stories from the flip side history, be sure to check out the Useless Information Podcast. That's the Useless Information Podcast, podcasting worldwide since 2008 and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to check it out.
2: Last October, I explored the origins of the legend of werewolves, and during the course of that exploration, I was obliged to speak about accusations of witchcraft, as the two were intimately connected. Among all the iconic monsters that appear this time of year on dollar store decorations, the vampire, the werewolf, and witches, it is the witch that people generally know has some basis in history and truth, as it is common knowledge that large numbers of accused witches were put to death, both here in America, in New England, and across Europe in the early modern period. But what do we really know about the women and men accused of witchcraft and what led to their trials? Is there any historical evidence to suggest that these people had actually done anything we might today think of as witchy? Or was it a moral panic that claimed the lives of many who were completely innocent? If so, what touched off this panic? Who and what were these accused witches, really? And why did they end up burned and hanged? You probably think you know the answers to these questions. But you may be surprised. For example, belief in witches may go all the way back to antiquity when those believed to practice sorcery, incantations, and poisoning were punished under the law in many lands. However, it seems lesser known that during the Middle Ages, with the Christianization of Europe, authorities both divine and secular passed laws against persecuting others for witchcraft and even denied its existence. Medieval canon law declared that any who believed they did such things as witches were commonly accused of doing, such as riding on beasts by night in the train of the pagan goddess Diana, had simply been deluded by the devil to believe their dreams were real. A number of Catholic popes expressly forbade the torturing and executing of those accused of witchcraft such as Pope Nicholas I and Pope Gregory II. However, by the 13th century, the Catholic Church's Holy Inquisition was involved in crusades against heretics in France, the Cathars and the Waldensians, and the accusations of devil worship leveled against them, as well as their brutal extirpation, hearkened back to witch purges of the past and presaged the witch hunts to come. Even so, as late as 1258, Pope Alexander IV declared a bull that prohibited inquisitors from investigating sorcery. A couple hundred years later, though, the Catholic Church essentially invented the idea of the witch as we know it today, not as a simple sorcerer or diviner or a pagan worshiper, but as a servant of Satan. When they combined witchcraft accusations, with accusations of heresy. Many see its beginnings in the late 15th century, when Pope Innocent VIII issued an infamous bull that acknowledged the existence of real witchcraft, not just dreams or visions, but real sorcery, and empowered the Inquisition to prosecute its practitioners. We don't know for certain the exact number of people tried and executed for witchcraft by the Holy Inquisition in Europe during the 16th and 17th centuries, but surviving records indicate that around 40,000 were killed. Who were the accused and what led to the accusations made against them? This is Historical Blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd and I'm undertaking a hunt for witches, but mine is a fact-finding mission, and I will purge only myths. Thanks for listening to A Rediscovery of Witches, Part 1, The Hammer and the Horned God. Before we move on in the episode, I want to take the time to thank several new patrons on Patreon, Raymond, Ben, Alicia, Adriana, Jay, Abby, Owen, Simon, Alan, Kyle, Emily, Devlin, and L. cincinnatus As well as JS, you pledged a while back and I'm unsure if I ever thanked you. Also, big thanks to Sindra, Karen, Emily, and Stuart for generous donations through the website and through PayPal. Thanks so much for your support, all of you. It seems that my series on the Illuminati has brought me some new listeners, so welcome to any who have just discovered the show. If any new listeners want to pledge on Patreon, you get ad free episodes and a whole back catalog of exclusive content. Soon, for example, I'll be releasing a complete interview with a guest, whom you'll hear from on this episode. Since the pandemic hit, I've been pausing monthly billing, but at this point I am thinking of letting billing go through again on November 1st. My family lost one income due to the lockdown and we could use extra support. That all depends on whether I decide to take a hiatus during the holidays as I typically do though. I'll keep you informed. In the meantime, those who want to help me and my family out during this financial crisis can donate at historicalblindness.com slash donate or at paypal.me slash NathanLeviLloyd, first letter of each name capitalized. Others who want to support the show can do it by visiting my custom Audible URL at audibletrial.com slash historicalblindness, where you can sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible and I'll get a bit of a kickback from them in the process. I really appreciate any support. On with the episode. Welcome to Historical Blindness. I've always covered something a bit spooky around Halloween. In 2018, I spoke about Springheel Jack and the Devil's Footprints in Devon. But most of my other Halloween episodes have really focused on moral panics having to do with accusations of monstrous behavior. And these episodes really culminate, I feel, with this series. At the end of my first year of podcasting, I did a two-part series on the history of false accusations of devil worship. And last year, I did another two-part series on werewolf trials. I'm proud of both of those, and encourage you to listen to them this October if you've never heard them. The topic also flows well from episodes I've done this year, starting with the patron exclusive I did on the Suppression of the Knights Templar, and through my discussion of the supposed origin of magic, and my look at heresy and heterodoxy in the Apocrypha, I can see a thread. My discussion of anti-Semitism through the ages certainly serves as a parallel to the witch hunts I'll be discussing, and even my series on Mary, Queen of Scots, connects. For her son, James, as King, wrote his own book on witchcraft, justifying the prosecution of witches under canon law. I even see a direct connection to my last episode, in which I drew a connection between QAnon conspiracy theories and long-standing conspiracy theories about the Illuminati. To clarify, the accusations made by QAnon believers owe a lot to witchcraft accusations, for they claim that the deep state is run by devil-worshippers who torture and kill children in order to harvest from them adrenochrome, a drug they enjoy, or simply to eat them. Anyone who has studied witchcraft accusations recognizes these claims. Witches were also accused of being devil-worshippers who ate children or sacrificed them, or harvested fat from them to make their hallucinogenic flying ointment. One could argue, in fact, that QAnon is just another witch hunt. But despite the progression from topics I've covered this year, and throughout the lifetime of the show, I have found the witch hunts of early modern Europe very difficult to parse and wrap my mind around. First of all, it feels wrong somehow to question what these women's lives were like, what they might have done for neighbors or authorities to target them for prosecution as witches, as if I'm engaging in victim blaming. Yet the more I look into this topic, the more a cut-and-dry claim that all accusations had sprung from the fevered imaginations of inquisitors seems untenable. Yet neither can I entertain the notion that witch hunters were justified in their prosecutions. It's just very complicated.
0: But I think any good historian will say, it's really complicated. It's a little of both.
2: That's Sarah Handley-Cousins from the fantastic podcast, Dig. She and her fellow hosts have been doing a series on witchcraft, and she'll be helping me to untangle this knot.
0: We have a joke on our podcast that we are constantly saying the word complicated. Like we have to go back through our episodes and take out instances where we're saying, well, it's complicated. you know I remember one episode where I just said, I think in every other paragraph, this was really complicated and that's because it's the his- history is really complicated. <laughs>
2: So we must consider all sides. What did the inquisitors believe of the accused? And what different views of them have historians taken? And what theories are there for why the witch purges of early modern Europe happened? To understand how witches were defined in early modern Europe and made into the perennial horror icons we know today, we must look to the writings of one true believer, Dominican monk and inquisitor Heinrich Kramer. Early in his career, this inquisitor undertook a witch hunt at Innsbruck, where a certain woman suspected of witchcraft challenged his authority, spitting on him in the street, calling him a quote-unquote bad monk refusing to attend his sermons and suggesting that, because of his own rabid belief in literal witchcraft, he was the one in league with Satan. This set Kramer off on a rampage of a witch purge, putting this woman and others on trial not so much for practicing sorcery, although there were rumors of this, but rather for their sexual behavior, which he asserted proved that they worshipped and engaged in sexual contact with the devil. The local bishop, however, disagreed, finding that Kramer asked leading questions, quote, presumed much that had not been proved, end quote, and quote, clearly demonstrated his foolishness, end quote. After the trial had been vacated, Kramer went home and stewed over it, and ended up, as a defense of his actions and a rebuttal to his critics, writing what turned out to be the most infamous witch-hunting manual of the era, the Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of the Witches. Kramer's was not the only witch-hunting manual used during the early modern witch hunts, but it was the most influential in German-speaking regions, And this was the heart of the witch purges that followed, with a majority of the prosecutions taking place within 300 miles of the Rhineland city of Strasbourg. The Malleus Maleficarum serves as the perfect source for understanding the conception of witchcraft that became dominant during the ensuing witch craze. Although witchcraft had long been thought of as a practice of both men and women, and indeed, during the early modern panic, men too were accused and executed for it.
0: In fact, as part of our witchcraft series, Marissa, one of my my colleagues on our podcast, did an episode specifically on man witches. So they were certainly, you know, there, there were men who were tried for witchcraft and who were executed. You know, famously, there was several men in the Salem witch trials who were executed. But it is largely associated with women.
2: For Kramer, witches were women. As at Innsbruck, Kramer blamed what he perceived as their lustful nature, as well as their supposed intellectual weakness, for their susceptibility to the devil's charms. A witch, he argued, was not simply a woman who performs magic. To be considered a witch, they have to, quote, deny the Catholic faith in whole or in part, through verbal sacrilege, to devote themselves body and soul to the devil, to offer up to the evil one himself, infants not yet baptized, and to persist in diabolic filthiness through carnal acts with incubus and succubus demons." End quote. So we see these motifs of sex with demons and the sacrifice of babies not entering the discourse for the first time but here cemented in a definition with criteria. And since, according to this definition, they were essentially heretics, he recommended torture in their prosecution and encouraged that they be burned at the stake, both standard inquisitorial practices for rooting out heresy. To think of Kramer's understanding of witches as an artifact of a dark age of ignorance that disappeared with the Enlightenment would be erroneous, though. For even in the twentieth century, at least one erudite and scholarly writer was giving them credence. The first English translation of the Malleus Maleficarum was published in 1928 by Montague Summers a Catholic writer who perpetuated the witch-hunting manual's notions as legitimate and true. In his books on witches, werewolves, and vampires, he presented the accusations of inquisitors as completely reliable, even the supernatural parts.
0: And of course that's problematic because the Malleus Maleficarum isn't we can't take it at face value. I mean, I mean the the Malleus Maleficarum also has long sections in it about witches stealing the penises off of men's bodies and putting them in trees and treating them like birds. So like it's got it's got some problems. You know, we got to take it with a grain of salt, right?
2: But more than this, he painted the picture of witchcraft practitioners as a vast conspiracy, like unto the Illuminati, describing the witch as, "quote an evil liver, a social pest and parasite, the devotee of a loathly and obscene creed, an adept at poisoning, blackmail, and other creeping crimes, a member of a powerful secret organization inimical to church and state, a blasphemer in word and deed, swaying the villagers by terror and superstition, a charlatan and a quack sometimes, a bawd, an abortionist, the dark counselor of lewd court ladies and adulterous gallants, a minister to vice and inconceivable corruption, battening on the filth and foulest passions of the age." Quote. Also, like believers in an Illuminati conspiracy, he saw the Bolsheviks as a parallel and even suggested that the actions of inquisitors against such a conspiracy were justified, writing, quote, Who can be surprised if, when faced with so vast a conspiracy, the methods employed by the Holy Office may not seem, if the terrible conditions are conveniently forgotten, a little drastic, a little severe? End quote. And while acknowledging the misogyny of Kramer's Malleus Maleficarum, He makes the loathsome suggestion that such persecution might be just what was needed for the women of his own day, stating, I am not altogether certain that they will not prove a wholesome and needful antidote in this feministic age, when the sexes seem confounded, and it appears to be the chief object of many females to ape the man an indecorum by which they divest themselves of such charm as they might boast." End quote. Regardless of his politics or misogyny, what is so striking about Montague Summers is that, as an Oxford-educated man-about-town and fixture of the London literary scene, he actually believed the irrational things he claimed to believe. One might blame this on his religious background, but his religiosity may have been an affectation. He was ordained a deacon in the Anglican church, but after a scandal in which he was accused of sexually assaulting boys, his career in the church came to an end. He converted to Catholicism after that, and appears to have pursued ordination as a priest so single-mindedly that he traveled to Italy in search of a cardinal who would be willing to ordain him in an unorthodox ceremony. So it seemed the pretension of being a clergyman was more important to him than any doctrine or faith. He was known to go about town in a cape and the black felt shovel hat typical of clergymen, presenting himself like an 18th century inquisitor. In fact, his interest in witchcraft, too, may have been an affectation. Originally, he had made a name for himself as a scholar of restoration theater. After being approached by a publisher who requested he write a volume on the occult, Summers wrote the first work in what would end up being a large body of work on the topic. And after his first more academic treatments of the topic, he pivoted into works on the occult aimed at popular audiences and even into writing Gothic horror fiction. Montague Summers was a contemporary and acquaintance of Alistair Crowley, and it may be that he was influenced by Crowley's own cultivation of a public image as an occultist and warlock. Some contemporaries believed Summers was himself an occultist, and that he wrote of such things from experience. But based on Summers' surviving letters and his work, it's much more likely that he had been attempting to cultivate an image of himself as a counterpart to Crowley, a modern witch hunter to Crowley's modern witch. On Montague Summer's gravestone, the epitaph reads, quote, tell me strange stories, end quote. And this suggests that rather than being a true believer, perhaps he simply enjoyed a good dark tale, as do so many of us. Now for a brief intermission. As podcast listeners, you probably already know that Audible is a fantastic repository of original podcasts and tons of audiobooks. Fans of audio drama and storytelling podcasts will find lots of great original programming on Audible as well as a massive library of professionally produced audiobooks narrated so well that they'll feel like audio drama. Maybe you feel like you don't read as much as you used to, or as much as you should. Listening to audiobooks is a great way to fall in love with reading again. If you're not sure where to start, maybe you want something creepy for Halloween. If you've been watching The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix, maybe you want to check out the work of literature that inspired it, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Audible has a great version of the novel performed by the peerless Emma Thompson. In order to directly support this show and me and my family, go to www.audibletrial.com historicalblindness to get your free 30-day trial of Audible and pick up a free audiobook. For every one of my listeners who signs up for a free trial at that custom URL, Audible sends me a bit of money, so you really are helping me out by doing it. Sign up, enjoy an audiobook or original podcast, cancel it if you aren't into it, or keep it. They have a variety of membership plans to serve both avid and occasional readers. Once more, that's audibletrial.com slash Historical Blindness, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks for your
1: support. Hello, my name is Devin, writer and host of Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast where we follow medieval history through the stories of its travelers. There are Franciscan monks going overland to visit the Mongols, Florentine silk merchants at the Sultan's court in Cairo, Abbasid envoys observing Viking funerals, and a medieval bestseller, an English knight who perhaps didn't exist at all. There's Prester John, and there's dog-headed men, and there are accounts of the miraculous and the strange. For those stories and more, join me on Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms
2: were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the center of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe an empire on which the sun never set. Hosted by Dr. Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. In Season 1, you can hear about England's first attempts at empire building in Ireland and the New World, and hear about the first steps of the East India Company, as well as the political battles going on between king and parliament. In Season 2, you can hear about the chaotic years of Civil War, Revolution, and Regicide that rocked those three kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire. Now, in Season 3, you can hear how Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell rules the powerful Commonwealth, battling the Dutch and the Spanish Empires for dominance of the Atlantic world. So if you want to learn more about the history of the British Empire, listen to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts or go to pod.link forward slash Now, back to the show. The case of Montague Summers mirrors in some ways the case of another academic, a contemporary of his, who spread a different, more rational view of the nature of witches, but whose view was no less problematic, whose methods were flawed in some of the same ways, and whose career followed a comparable trajectory. Her name was Margaret Murray. Here again is Sarah Handley-Cousins from the Dig History podcast. She recently researched and wrote an episode for her show on Murray.
0: Margaret Murray was a fascinating person. She was born in the mid-19th century, 1863, I believe. And she lives, if I'm correct, until 1963. So, like, just imagine. I mean, that's such an interesting lifespan. 1863 to 1963. Like, the incredible changes she must have seen. So, she was born to a, from what I understand, a fairly wealthy family. She was born in India. And grew up to go to college. She went to the University College of London and became an Egyptologist and was really interested in doing fieldwork and the archaeological aspect of, of Egyptology, right? Do, going out into the field and actually doing this kind of research. But she hits sort of a bump in her career during World War One when it's really difficult, well, it's impossible, really, for her to get to Egypt to do this research, right? And so she finds herself sort of stuck in this rut. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that she's also faces, you know, extra sort of obstacles in her career because she is a woman in a male-dominated field. And, you know, one of the things that historians today have done with, with Margaret Murray's legacy is to remind people that male egyptologists ended up taking credit for a lot of her work i'm not a murray scholar but in the reading that i did for this episode one of the things that i thought was really striking is that when she made the kind of switch from egyptology to folklore her first move wasn't to witchcraft it was to um grail scholarship she was interested in the Holy Grail. She made her, some of her first work on folklore was to make the connection between the the hunt for the Grail and the Egyptians. And that there was this connection between the Grail and Egypt. And as soon as I heard that or read that, I thought, oh my gosh, it's Indiana Jones, (laughs) you know. Her first book on witchcraft, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, really does make a big splash. And it's one of those books that Um, From what I understand, it's not just important inside the Academy, right? It's not just a book that other scholars are reading, but it's also a book that is making its way into the culture. So one thing that I found when I was researching this that I thought was absolutely fascinating is that H.P. Lovecraft actually name checks Margaret Murray and the witch cult in Western Europe twice in his short story writing. And one is in The Call of Cthulhu, which is one of, you know, his most famous stories. And so it certainly seems reasonable to me that she sort of latched onto this other field and, and stuck with it because it was something that she was getting sort of notoriety for. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. You know, it probably was incredibly gratifying to feel like you were, you know, finally successful in something and getting that credit.
2: Essentially, Margaret Murray, too, believed that the women accused of witchcraft in early modern witch trials were part of a kind of vast conspiracy, in that she asserted they were actually secretly practitioners of an ancient pagan fertility cult that operated like a secret society in Christian Europe.
0: In the witch cult in Western Europe, she makes this argument that witchcraft was real. So let me sort of parse that for a second. What she's not saying, like she's not making the argument that there really were women who practiced magic in the form of, say, brewing herbal potions or making, coming up with charms and selling things like that. But she takes it kind of one step further and makes the argument that No, witches were real in the sense that there was sort of a cult. There was this kind of underground religion where people worshipped what she called the horned god, a pagan religion that was sort of being maintained underground to avoid the power and might of the Catholic Church. She frames it as sort of a resistance to the dominance of Catholicism, that this was an ancient western european religion that preceded catholicism's reign in western europe it very much sees it as an attempt to maintain something that was true and indigenous to western europe before the sort of invaders of catholicism arrived sort of a true ancient religion of this place and um, that Catholicism was actually, was an interloper, right, that had come in and was trying to sort of stamp out these true ancient religions. And so she makes this argument that there is this religion and that the women who are accused of witchcraft really are witches, that they really are um, taking part in this alternate sort of, um, maybe you would think of it as dark or occult religion, and she goes into immense detail about the rites that these women are performing. She, she describes the witches' Sabbath, which was these, you know, meetings of these covens. She talks in great detail about li- things like how many people are in each coven. What's the order of sort of ceremonies of <laughs> these witches' Sabbaths? I mean, she's, it's incredibly detailed theory that she comes up with.
2: Yet her theory stands in opposition to Montague Summers before she approached the subject of witches with a more skeptical and rational perspective.
0: She's a rationalist writer in that she's not saying that these women are witches in the sense that they're flying around on broomsticks. She says, oh, no, 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 no that's that's not what's going on. Like that. that's obviously, that's sort of like the embellishment.
2: She claimed that everything witch trial records spoke of witches doing had really been done, but had been misunderstood or misrepresented by prosecutors.
0: But when they said that they were flying around on broomsticks, that actually was them describing this particular kind of ceremony. So for instance, a story that often comes out in witch trials is, women um having familiars and perhaps turning into familiars and she says well when they were saying that what they actually meant was that they were sort of symbolically acting as animals or taking on the the qualities of an animal in their witches sabbats or in as part of their you know coven ceremonies and so she's sort of reinterpreting the evidence that comes out in witch trials to explain how it fits into this real religion that she's that she's describing
2: Margaret Murray's theory evolved from her first book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe, to her follow-up, The God of the Witches.
0: Some of the theories that she first talks about in The Witch Cult of Western Europe, she takes that, you know, and sort of runs with it in the, The God of the Witches.
2: At first, working from reports of witches being deluded by the devil into the worship of a goddess named Diana. She suggested this Diana was actually the ancient Roman two-faced male deity Janus. In her later work though, influenced by the comparative mythology work of James Fraser in The Golden Bow, she identified their deity with the Horned God, who had been mistaken for the devil by witch hunters, but was really a representation of a syncretistic deity that could be found in many cultures Stretching back to the ancient Greek Pan,
0: I mentioned that she paints these very detailed pictures of what witches' Sabbats looked like. Um, that she had really specific details about how many people were in covens, what they did at coven ceremonies. Some of the stuff you know is explicitly sexual ceremonies that were taking place. Um, that were either symbolic. Part of this ancient religion is that it's a, essentially a fertility cult. They're performing pagan rites because they believe that they are helping to ensure the, the the fertility of the community, and also that they're ensuring the fertility of the of the harvests. And so she talks about these really overtly sexual ceremonies where women are being symbolically penetrated. Or where they're literally being penetrated and, you know, performing this kind of act of you know fertility or whatever.
2: Murray believed that a male priest or authority figure wore some headdress to act as a stand-in for their horned god and performed these sexual acts on the female adherents of the cult, using a prosthetic phallus when the physical demands were too much, and again drawing on James Fraser's work which identified the figure of a sacred king who must atone for his people as a sacrifice, she suggested this male figure was ritualistically or at least symbolically burned, which could be discerned in witch confessions that spoke of the devil disappearing in flames. And in the ultimate reversal of what is generally believed about early modern witch hunts, She claimed that these pagan cultists actually provoked Christians into burning them alive in order to imitate their dying god and effect the human sacrifice their cult required. At first, the theory seemed promising in its rational view and even believable, and it spread widely when in 1929, Murray was invited to write Encyclopedia Britannica's entry on witchcraft and took the opportunity to present her theory as if it were historical consensus or fact. But it was not, for there were real problems with her ideas and her methods.
0: So... The problems <laughs> with Margaret Murray's analysis, some of it she is getting from nowhere. There, Some of it is is purely fiction. When I say that it's fiction, I don't think that she thought that she was writing a fictional narrative. I think that she thought that she was doing interpretation and filling in the blanks by sort of interpreting what she was reading. In some cases, Very significant parts of her theory are based on very, very small snippets of testimonies.
2: For example, Murray cited witch trial records that recorded confessions describing intercourse with the devil as being cold as her only evidence that her cult's priests used prosthetic phalluses for their ceremonies. And her insistence that descriptions of the devil disappearing in flames were proof of their burning sacrifice of their horned god effigy seems a bit ridiculous since the association of the devil with the flames of hell seems a clearer origin for such details.
0: So that's one problem, right? She's basing these kind of large arguments on something that will be mentioned once in a, in a source. This idea that the Covens had exactly 13 members. She makes this, you know, states that the Covens had exactly 13 members. Historians believe now that she got that from one testimony in one trial from one accused person. You know, she's taking a very small piece of information and then sort of expanding on it to a, a really irresponsible degree. But then I think what's the the more problematic aspect of her research is that she's reading trial transcripts uncritically. So she takes the, the, the transcripts from these trials where these accused women are giving their testimony and she's taking it all as very literal. Um, and she's also not thinking in terms of the context in which that testimony is taken. She takes the the testimony as literal, except in the instances of these more wild, you know, impossible things. So she says, no, 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 it's not actually true that they were flying, but everything else they said, that actually happened.
2: So ironically, her supposedly rationalist view of witchcraft suffered from one of the very same problems as Montague Summers' work. She presumed that the acts confessed to under duress had actually taken place. She may have sought a different, more naturalistic interpretation of the lurid descriptions than witch persecutors and Summers had, but she never stopped to ask whether the accused may have just been telling the witch hunters what they demanded to hear. Among the many criticisms of her work were doubts expressed about her, quote, dubious etymology, end quote, in suggesting that the name Diana was derived from Janus, or that the word Sabbath, used by witch hunters and in the confessions of the accused to refer to their gatherings and rituals, was not used in mockery of Jewish customs, as was commonly believed, but must have been derived from a word for Quote unquote "...frolic," even though elsewhere in her own work she takes no issue with the Jewish term synagogue being used to refer to witches' gatherings. But her principal historiological sins are that she was supremely selective in her use of primary sources, quoting only that which supported her claims and omitting all else." and she presented even her wildest assertions as if they were so clear and obvious as to be unquestionable. This quote from Jacqueline Simpson's article on Murray in Folklore paints a clearer picture of her scholarship, criticizing the, quote, Inclusion of many chunks of miscellaneous material from a huge variety of periods and cultures flung together in a hodgepodge where a Paleolithic cave painting, an Egyptian mask, and the dorset oozer all are said to represent the same horned god, and where Robin Hood, fairies, scrying, Merlin, Norse seers, and Celtic saints are all swept up into the discussion. Precisely because the material is so diverse, the links so tenuous, and the tones so dogmatic, untrained readers are naturally mystified and assume that their own limited knowledge is at fault. Overawed, they feel themselves to be in the presence of great scholarship, which they dare not query. Her books, alas, are not alone in profiting from this effect." End quote. This method and the reliance on dubious etymology reminds me of the style of another writer who argued that pagan traditions had secretly survived in modern times, the anti-Catholic conspiracy theorist Alexander Hislop, who in his book, The Two Babylons, argued that Catholicism was just a collection of pagan traditions from antiquity. Have a listen to my episode on him and his work, A Tale of Two Babylons, and I'm sure you'll recognize the similarity. It seems to me that much like Montague Summers, Margaret Murray may have been bewitched, if you'll excuse the pun, by the popularity of her work on witches and the prospect of further success among general audiences. Certainly, when academic historians and folklorists are generous enough to afford her any praise, it's usually for her early work and not for her later books, which are generally considered to have gone entirely off the rails.
0: I'm less familiar with the third one, but yeah, from what I understand, they just be, they get more and more wild and conspiratorial and in part that's what makes them so fun to sort of learn about maybe she saw that these things were really catching on that, that people found them fascinating and so she kept with
2: it her work has had a major impact among feminists and beyond the spread of her peculiar myth of a pagan cult in western europe persecuted as devil worshipers by christians her work also contributed to other historical myths related to the nature of witches. We'll discuss these further developments next time in part two of A Rediscovery of Witches. And we'll get down to brass tacks in discussing whether witches really were practicing some kind of magic and what other reasons may have led to accusations of witchcraft in early modern Europe. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Big thanks goes out to Sarah Handley-Cousins of DIG, a history podcast. Check out her show if you don't already listen. I'll put a link in the show notes. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Joe, Jacob, Robert, Diane, Marina, and Emily. Maybe we can get this coven's membership up to that magical number of 13. Some music on this episode was provided by Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. Be sure you visit patreon.com historicalblindness and pledge to get ad-free episodes and exclusive content. Or support the show by signing up for a free 30-day trial of Audible at audibletrial.com historicalblindness. On the website historicalblindness.com, you can find the blog posts with transcripts of the episodes and bibliographies for further reading. And you can make one-time donations there to support this podcast or at paypal.me slash Nathan Levi Lloyd. Follow the show on social media and give it a review, especially on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, remember, often the simplest explanation doesn't hold up under scrutiny. History, like life, is complicated. Stream
1: the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts.